Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I just spoke to USA Today bestselling author Emily E.K. Murdoch, and it was great. She was super generous and uh, with her time, and we talked about loads of things, including when she met the Queen of England, uh, her ridiculous, annoyingly high daily word counts, and why it is that everybody loves a duke. So here we go. Welcome to Romancing the Tome, the podcast where I speak with our favorite romance novelists and ask them about their stories and their craft and the books that they can't put down at night. I'm your host, historical romance writer Margot Thorne. Thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure to meet you. I have read your books. I have seen you on social media, but this is our first time talking. So thank you again. Thank My you again. So Emily, let's let's get to it, right? Let's get to it. I'm going to ask you like the most important questions first. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I hope you're ready. Hope you're ready. Oh, I'm you... as ready as I possibly can be. <laughs> okay. No, I got it. I got it. So you live in England. Yes. What part of England are you living in now? So I am just outside Bath, um, so oh, Jane Austen kind of bill area. Um, so for those who don't know English geography that well, um, if you look at a map of the UK and you see London, and if you draw a line directly to the left, mm-hmm. just before you hit the sea, that's where I am. So I'm about 10, 15 minutes away from the seaside, which is really nice, I have to say. That is. Did you grow up there? I didn't. I grew up on the complete opposite side, much closer to London. I grew up in Kent in Canterbury, so Thomas a Beckett sort of style things. Oh yeah. Um, but again, like very close to the sea. I was I was five and a half miles from the sea. So that was a, a typical walk that we do. Walk there, get fish and chips, get the bus back home. For sure. Are you now are you can you live anywhere away from the water now, or is it like a must for you? I hmm. I love being near water. And yeah. when I was looking at university, everywhere I ended up looking at in the UK to study had either a very large river going through it or was by the seaside. And I didn't do that consciously at the beginning. And it was only when I was coming to the kind of decision making process where I was like, okay, you know, all of these places are great to study, but what's my life going to be like for the three right. years there? I suddenly realized, like, oh, <laughs> turns out I need to be near water. And in fact, there's yes. a river about 150 yards from my house and I do my daily walk along that river and I just find it so calming. It is. It totally is. Like it's, it's, I will feel like I grew up next to one of the Great Lakes. So not an ocean, but a Great Lake. And um, yes, I found out because I moved to Colorado for a while right out of college and it's so landlocked. Yeah. That I felt, I mean, I love it. Like Colorado, you can't say enough beautiful things about Colorado, right? It's, it's heaven, but it's kind of claustrophobic. You know, like once you're used to living by water. So no, I totally get that. And I think the difficulty is, is that being British, yeah, as you can tell from my delightful accent, listeners. Delightful, yes. Um, <laughs> I, I live on a very small island. I don't think yeah. many British people understand just how tiny our island is compared to any American state. Any right. of them. And, you know, we can, I can cross most of this country top to bottom in like 10 hours car drive. And that is... Yeah nothing for someone who lives in Texas but that's my entire country <laughs> and so you know the, there's an element here of you know no matter where I would live in the UK you're never really that far from water to be honest that's true no that's a very good point very good point 
Okay. Well, I was going to ask you if you've ever met anybody like in the British royal family or something. That was like my hard pressing question, but well, um, yeah. get on water. Oh, yes, please <laughs> go. <laughs> so we'll get I, to your books later, Emily. Like, come uh, on. Books? What books? Um, I, I'm a big royalist. I love the royal family. Yes. Um, I'm, in fact, I'm working right now um, on a historical nonfiction book about the royals, um, which is very exciting. Um, but I have a friend whose father is a royal chaplain. So he and his family live in Windsor Great Park in, in, a, in a house that is provided by the Crown. Um, and a few years ago now, my friend invited myself and my husband to one of the Queen's 90th birthday celebrations. <gasps> like her garden uh, party ones? Is that was that? No, it was much different? more intimate. It was the um, it was. Uh, it wasn't quite Easter, but it was near Easter. It was the, for the weekend. And essentially the Queen was going to be at Windsor for this and she was going to be attending church on Sunday. Her faith was really, really important to her. Um, and I share that faith. It's very important to me. Um, and essentially we, we, I went to church with the Queen in this tiny little English village church. Um, oh my gosh. And then the village hall, we all went back with the Queen and the, you know, Prince Philip was there. And we had a small birthday party for her, probably about 30 people, maybe 40 people. We had a cake. She planted a tree. We sang her happy birthday. Um, and then Prince Philip drove her off afterwards, waving to us, not looking in any way where he was going. Uh, <laughs> well, he does have a scurvy like driving history, right? Like he, he he's, he's known to hit some people. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that was really, really special because that was, you know, something that she was sharing with her staff, you know, people who lived yes. and worked at Windsor, something, you know, people that she'd known, I mean, for some of them, literally generations, you know, right, this was right. her 90th birthday party. She'd been on the, the throne, you know, coming up 50, 60, 70, you know, it, it's impossible for someone of almost any other generation to imagine that sort of longevity. Right. Um, and I was just so honoured to be there. And I also, because I'm because I'm unable to restrain myself in any way. Oh, Once she had left, I went back into the church and I touched the seat where she had sat. You know what? Um, I would have been upset if you didn't do that. I mean, <laughs> come on. You have to. Like, oh, wait, are you also the kind of person, because I know, like, you worked as a historian, that you go someplace in, like, a chapel, for instance, you'll touch the wall. Like, I like to touch the walls because oh, I'm just like, you know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. like. Yeah. My my bad habit with that is touching door handles, especially of kind of old churches or in castles, because I think, well, you know, chances are royalty touch this door handle. You know, I, I think chances are, are pretty that, great there. Pretty great. That sort of iron that they made in kind of the, especially the 13th, 14th century, they don't replace that. It's good stuff. No, it's, it's, it's good. So, you know, there's, you know, finding like the oldest doors or, you know, there's, there's a door in a church in Dartmouth, which is 800 years old. You know, it's from right. the 1200s. It's the same door. Yep. And you That's think, amazing. oh my goodness, <laughs> you know, people have been walking in and out of this door for hundreds of years and here I am and there'll be hundreds of years after me of people walking right. through this door and we're all connected in this chain of door handles which seems so, so basic but at the same time it's, 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 part of, it's part of humanity that we all share for sure but you have to be careful because I almost got kicked out of what is it one of the Newport mansions in Rhode Island because I touched oh. I touched one of their books and like you don't really think they're gonna you know they say don't touch the stuff okay no no I get it I know you said don't touch the stuff but did you really mean don't touch the stuff so of course like no one's in the room and I just touched the cover of a book and a lady 
came right around the corner. She's like, you will have to leave if I catch you doing that. Well, I can tell, I can tell you, <laughs> I did some work with the National Trust. Um, so I think oh, most that's right. will know what the National Trust is. But if you don't know, um, international listeners, uh, the National Trust is a charity um, that essentially buys and then manages historic sites. So that historic site could be a castle, a mansion, a palace, but it's also things like ancient Iron Age earthworks and it's right. you know really important biodiverse coastland and you know so it, it's a great variety and um, I interned there for a few months and I was looking after a beautiful house um, called Polston Lacey strong recommend if you're in the area um, we have like trip wires and sensors and stuff if you cross a line that you're not meant to cross on even if there's no one in the room, you are being watched. I can guarantee you. Listen, I know. I know now. Okay. <laughs> I learned my lesson. I probably probably won't touch something ever again. I don't know. It depends on what mood I'm in. But well, yes. this is this is what I love about the National Trust is that about ooh, 10 or 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, they cottoned on finally to the fact that we're a very tactile species. We like to touch <laughs> stuff. Yes. And so a lot of properties now will have in a room like here is a sample of the leather that's used in the wallpaper. Come and touch it. This is what it feels like. This is a sample. Right. Please don't touch the actual leather wallpaper. That's 400 years old. But right. this sample, right. go nuts. And right. I really like that. That is nice. And maybe that'll work. I don't know. Maybe that'll work for someone like me. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> but um, okay. All right. We're done. I'm done. I mean, I'm going to ask you about William and Harry later, but not right now. But I'll get okay. to it. All right. All okay. right. <laughs> so I know you have a book coming out in a couple of days. And I actually read the first book in this series yesterday. Um, Don't judge a book by its cover, right? Or by his cover. It's in your Dangerous Duke series. Mm-hmm. So go ahead and tell me about like what drew you to that? Like, first of all, Dukes, right? Everyone loves a Duke. What's what's up with Dukes? I just, I don't know. Everyone just fun loves to write a Duke. Yeah, you know what? I I actually did a talk at the Writing Gals conference last year or the year before. Time is a bit of a construct at the moment. I, the pandemic <laughs> years kind of all merge into one. Yes. Um, but I did a, a talk on dukes and why are, why are dukes absolutely everywhere in historical romance? And I polled my readers because I was like, well, I've got my theories, but what does everyone else think? So I polled my readers, and I was actually really surprised about a lot of the stuff that came back. Most of them were like, it's the it's the equivalent of a billionaire. You know, they can go right. anywhere, they can do anything, they can pay for anything. Any problem can be solved with money or prestige or respect or rank. And that's very attractive. The idea that this man can come into your life and just fix all your problems. Who doesn't want that? Right. right. But at the same time, there was also this big, big emphasis on you know, in a lot of countries, dukes don't exist anymore, or they never have. And it's very alluring to think of someone from this like pedigree, this family that their history goes back four, 500 years, living in the same house, the same paintings on the wall. That's very alluring and very intriguing. Yeah. Imagine um, all the doorknobs. Imagine all the doorknobs in a duke's doorknobs. castle. Right. And I think someone's going to come in halfway and be like, is Donald's a euphemism? <laughs> no, <laughs> like, no, it's not. I mean, it could be. Uh, but I think there's also this this element of honour and respect, this idea that, yeah. you know, dukes are usually, not always, usually one of two things. They're either incredibly respectful and distant and cold and harsh and rigid, and it just takes the perfect woman or man to draw them out of that shell. Or they're the complete opposite direction. They're rakes, they're rascals, they can't be tamed, they're living life on the edge, and it takes the love of a good woman or man 
to bring them back into that kind of loving connection. So I think we love this idea of kind of the bad boy and, you know, I can fix him. That's a big emphasis in Dukes. Um, but also this honour, this very this sense that, you know, a Duke has respect. They may not show it, but they understand what it is to respect others. I think right. that's very attractive. Right. And, and do you hit, I assume, I mean, in the first book, you definitely hit on all of those, uh, those <laughs> facts for sure. For sure. I mean, do you enjoy it? I mean, do you do you enjoy like I guess taking the Duke apart like that? Yeah. I love to ruin a man before I rescue him. Oh um, god, I yes. Love- <laughs> and I think that's, you know, that's part of what historical romance has always been. You know, no matter how far back you go, you know, I I'm a medievalist by training. I did my master's in medieval studies. And yeah. even in the eleven hundreds, they were telling stories set in the seven hundreds about this nostalgic time when men were more honourable and women were more bold and brave. And, you know, the women went around right. with swords. We always have this hearkening back to the past. And I think that that's what I love about Dukes and that they hearken back to something that already and still exists. We have Dukes now, Duke of Kent. You know, we've got Michael, Duke of Kent, which is where I grew up. You know, yeah. you think, well, we've, we've got Dukes. But nothing in reality is ever going to live up to the expectations of what you can create in a story. Yes. And I think of one of the things that I loved about writing the series was I'm able to explore all the different facets, all the different stereotypes, all the different tropes. You know, I have fake dukes and surprise dukes, dukes that are running away from responsibility, dukes that are taking their responsibility way too seriously. Yep. You know, mm-hmm. dukes that are really well-meaning, but bless them, not that bright. And I have <laughs> dukes that are arguably too bright for their own good and get themselves tangled in knots. And I think that's that's been really fun for me as an author. And I'm hopeful, and so far reviews are good, that my readers enjoy that as well. That actually Duke is not just this one thing. It's for a sure. huge plethora of different ways to express that title. There are so many Dukes in English writing right now. <laughs> They're just you would think yeah. that the country is just overrun with them. But like, yes, it's so super fun. Super fun. So do you want to tell us about the new book coming out? So the new book that I have coming out um, on September 15th, this is book seven. It's going to be of 12. No, sorry, book six. Oh, wow. Book six of 12. There's seven books out, um, or the last one's on pre-order. This is Put Your Best Duke Forward. <laughs> I love that. I so <laughs> that much my titles, I can't even I tell you. Um, <laughs> so this, this one is a real curveball for me. It's a little bit different um, and because my hero, Joseph Tilsome, which is the Duke of Wincham, um, is disabled he's had a leg amputation due to his time in the war and it's not an injury that he is fully healed from physically but it's most definitely not an injury that he has healed from emotionally and mentally uh, and one of his key frustrations is the kind of thing that he used to do to relax and unwind and de-stress and i think you know those of us who us um, we all know what that's like that actually it's the things that we depend on for mental health, the things that we depend on, our friends, our family, going to the gym, going to the nice restaurant, just leaving the house. We lost all that. And so um, Joseph is absolutely determined that he will want to write again because writing was his passion, writing was what he absolutely loved. And, and his doctor recommends a horse trainer who has never failed. And Joseph begrudgingly says, Right, I'll, I'll meet him. You know, this guy will soon see that there's a situation is completely impossible um but a woman in breeches arrives at his door 
and his self-imposed isolation suddenly doesn't seem as important as proving Miss Godwin or Hattie to her friends that she's wrong. She can't fix it. She can't give him. She can't help him. And he's going to go out of his way to make sure she knows it. Uh, but unfortunately, Hattie's got her own problems. It's not all about Joseph. Uh, Hattie's um, got a, a stud, a horse farm stud. Uh, it's riddled with debt. Um, and it's got to be paid one way or the other. And so an agreement is made. Um, but of course, there's drama and surprises and giggling and people accidentally falling over and all the things that my readers know to expect. Um, but I think with, you know, a little bit of danger, a little bit of spicy danger in there, which I won't say because it's a nice plot twist. Okay, awesome. No, it sounds fantastic. And are, did you do you ride or did you have to learn about riding for this book? I had to learn. I have never stepped onto a horse in my life. See, I thought um, all English people like rode horses like all the time. So that's I assume all Americans did when I was younger. I was like, Westerns, like 90% of America is you know, Western country. Yeah, just like right? it actually it is. It's, but but yes, no, no, no. So no, I'm I'm not I'm not a rider. I do there are, there are riders in my family. So I actually have my cousin's daughter um, represents Europe in in horse riding. Um, so I I have my connections. Um, but but also you know it's one of the one of the joys of being a historical. Well, no, any author I think is that you do have to research. You're never going to have a full experience your characters are having and if you have are you writing an autobiography right <laughs> you know the, exactly. i think there's always something even if you're writing contemporary fiction you know there'll be locations that you've set things in or industries that you're setting scenes in or types of people that aren't you and you have to do your research you have to do your due diligence um you have to make sure that you are listening to and reading from the people with that lived experience um, and just absorbing, you know, YouTube. YouTube is such a YouTube. resource. Oh, just it's so fantastic, and... isn't it? Oh, my gosh. It's incredible. I don't know how people wrote without it, to be quite honest. <laughs> I, know. Um, I know. Because, you know, especially for me with accents, you know, I, I, don't have a, I don't have a very strong ear for accents. If I meet someone, I can't usually place them beyond a continent, which is terrible. I, I find it really difficult. So if I'm sitting there going, okay, no, I need someone with a Belgium accent how is that any different to French? I can go on YouTube and go Belgium accent versus French accent. And all of a sudden I have 50 instructional videos that tell me right. exactly what the differences are. No, That's exactly. really useful. And just for seeing things also, like I, it was so, I had to write about horses in a medieval series I wrote and just seeing the saddle, seeing someone ride. I mean, it's just like totally different thing. It, it's, it, I mean, God, it's helpful. It's so helpful. <laughs> it's, it's, I've just had a book come back from an editor, a different book, uh, where I have my hero and heroine kissing on the horse. So she, he, she's oh. riding near the front. He's behind her with his arms around her, and then she turns and kisses him. And my editor's comment is, is this possible? Like, wouldn't they fall <laughs> off the horse? And I was sad to sit there and go, you know, I don't know. I'm going to have to call someone. <laughs> like, is it possible? To kiss, for two people to ride on a horse and kiss without falling over. And I bet if you Googled that on YouTube, you'd see two people kissing on a horse. Like, I I'm sure it's there. Everything's yeah. there. It's yeah. amazing. The trouble is, is that a lot of it <laughs> is like Hallmark clips. And I'm like, I don't know if I can trust that as a reliable source. Sure you can. How sure. big is that horse? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you sound, well, you sound super, super busy because I know you're writing... You're writing this, you're writing your fiction book, and then also, I'm sorry, your nonfiction book. And then you're also 
like you're teaching classes. Yes. I mean, you teach classes online to, to would be yeah. writers. So yeah. I'm, I, I have all the things happening right now, you which do. is really, really I, exciting. I, I, listen, when you said that you were going to talk to me, I was like, no, no, I've seen this girl. <laughs> She's, she has no time. I always make time for the important things. Oh, yes. myself. But I mean, I, I'm, I'm at one of those. What I think a lot of our readers won't know is that sometimes things in publishing happen really, really quickly. And sometimes things take forever. Right. And that means that up to a point, you can try and plan your schedule. But actually, there's a huge amount that you can't plan in advance. You have to just kind of take each week, each month as it comes. So right now, what am I working on? I'm working on the research for my nonfiction historical project. And that was first talked about with my agent in November of last year. Okay. So that's November 22. And it's going to come out in October 24. So that's almost two years from the beginning of the yeah. conversation to having it in a reader's hand. On top of that, I'm doing edits right now for book two of a series I'm doing for Mills and Boone Harlequin. I really heard about exciting. that. Yes. Um, yeah. And that's a conversation that started 18 months ago. That started in January of 22. God, that's crazy. And that book won't come out until June 24. On top of that, I have got my amazing Dragonblade series coming out. I've been working with Dragonblade since uh, 2020. Um, and I, I just love them. I love what we do together. Um, so I have book six or seven coming out in a week, but that's a 12 book series. And I mm -hmm. have already written books one to four of the following series that will start coming out in September of 24. Oh, so you have two series with Dragonblade right now. Wow. Well, no, so the, the following series won't come out until Dukes in Danger is finished. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. But because I had the nonfiction project, I was like, I need to give myself a backlog. So I need to write as much Dragon Lead as I can and then switch my focus. Oh my gosh. How, much, and, how many words do you write a day? Uh, I or write how many do you try to? I write really fast. Yeah. So I write a minimum of 10,000 words in a day. I'm Damn, most. You write fast too. Like, oh my God. So I'm typically between twelve and fourteen thousand. Uh, I think my personal best is eighteen and a half thousand, but that was like, oh, never again. Like that was just awful. Wow. How um, long does it take you? Like, how long are you sitting at a computer coming up with those words? About three and a half hours. Okay, I don't even want to talk to you anymore. <laughs> okay, so 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 yeah, so. move on, move on. <laughs> I also I also teach so I teach craft and I teach the kind of the business of publishing and I also do freelancing so I edit I line edit I dev edit I do transliteration I proofread um and on very very select occasions I do offer mentoring but that is a very much a conversation I, I don't have that open to everyone mostly because I can't help everyone so I don't think it'd be appropriate for me to just have an open door on that because if, if I can't help you I, I wouldn't want to try and cheat you out of out of money essentially it just makes me feel really uncomfortable yeah um, so so that's what's going on right now but I think going back to kind of the word count I know a lot of people kind of their eyes glaze over when I say how fast I write and I think a couple of things to to remember number one I teach a whole course on how to write quickly like it is my superpower for other authors <laughs> they have other superpowers and they're things that I just can't do like I just I can't just write a clean manuscript like I, some right. people just sit there and they just write cleanly 
And it's, yeah, no, then, I don't understand those people either. And then, it's, and then it's good to go. Some people are able to retain research in their head. The number of books I have in this house because I can't retain information is disgusting. <laughs> I have seven bookcases full with four large boxes in the loft and like piles on chairs. Like because I can't retain some authors, they read it once, it's in their brain forever. Yeah. And that's a huge skill. So but also writing fast is something that I've worked really hard on. And I think part of the reason for that is the way that I got into writing in the first place, which mm-hmm. is that I worked a full-time job while being published. So I've been published 10 years. Um, I was published when I was 22. My first book came out then. And I cool. worked a full-time job until I was 30. Um, and this, like, it wasn't a simple job. I was the associate director of a PR company. And then I was a chief brand officer for a health tech company. So these were... Wow. 50 60 70 hour a week jobs yeah for plus sure. writing so if I had an hour spare I had to get the most words out that I could possibly do and so a lot of my craft and a lot of my training a lot of the learning I did and the extra courses that I did was all about like how can I get the most number of words down in the shortest amount of time while keeping the quality of the words good Right. Well, see, that's the hard part, right? It's the quality that's coming out. I mean, that's my issue. I mean, um, so do you do a lot of rewrites then or or how does that work? So so no. (laughs) (laughs) So I used to. I used to be the queen of write it once, write it eight times. It's still not quite there. Yeah. And I very quickly identified, you know, this is taking me forever. This is taking me forever. And I'm not saying I'll ever be able to write a perfect first draft and I still can't 10 years later. But it's got to be, I've got to get better than this. Like, this is just taking forever. Yeah. Um, and so what I do now is a process that I call deep plotting. This is something that I, I teach. Um, in fact, I, what I'll do is I'll, I'll put together a coupon code. Um, and anyone who wants to take that course, it, it, if you could put it in the, in the description. Um, Sweet. Of the podcast yeah, mode, of because it, it's one of the things I teach. Um, okay. It's essentially a process of plotting to such an extent that you only write two drafts. Ah, Okay. So you plot, you deep plot, and I, I go into all, in all the ins and outs of that. And of course, I give like I take you through creating one of my own books, so you know mm-hmm. you get to see exactly how I do it. But once I've done that, I write a draft and then I line edit that draft, and that's it. Because developmentally, I've done all the work in the plotting. Right, exactly. You're not. So I know. Forget like to add in this specific character because yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so. I do at least two drafts. Sometimes I'll then do a third if I if, if something comes to me. And that's the thing. You've got to leave room for creativity. As much as I'm a really big proponent of plotting, you do sometimes get two thirds of the way through your first draft. You go, oh my goodness, he has a twin brother, doesn't he? <laughs> that would be so great. And then, of course, you need at least another edit to make sure that you weave that in in a way that feels natural and feels enjoyable and, and sparks joy for the reader. Um, you can't predict when those things are going to happen. Uh, but right. most of the time, I'm a two-draft gal, which does cut down on time. Yes, for sure. My goodness. So how many books do you, I mean, in a perfect world, how many books would you put out a year? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I was, <laughs> sorry, Come I'm on, laughing. You know, you, I know, know. you know. And this is the thing. I'm laughing because I had this exact conversation with my husband three days ago. <laughs> Because I'm, I'm, I'm a planner in my life. I'm a scheduler. So I was looking at 2024. And I was like, right, okay, we're coming up to the last quarter of 23. I've got to start thinking. And I was like, well, I've got a Mills and Boone's Harlequin book coming out. And I don't know if they want a third or a fourth one. 
which they might want, and I don't know. I've got my Dragon Blade books, which are all scheduled and all written, so they're definite. I've got my non-fiction book, but I've also got a contemporary romance pen name that I do not reveal, which is doing something completely different. Fun. And I don't. I've, at the moment, I've only got one book for that name slated, but I could probably fit in a second one. Um, and then because of the way that traditional publishing works with my nonfiction, I'll start writing my next nonfiction book next year, even though it might not come out until 2025, 2026. Or do I want to push that back a year and give the first nonfiction the most opportunity to grow and succeed? So I don't know. That's a genuine I don't know. It's something that I'm, I'm thinking about and trying to work through at the moment because I'm really conscious that my readers deserve the absolute best. Yeah. And I don't want to overstuff my schedule to the point where I'm rushing things and I'm letting things slide and the quality is dropping because that that's not going to be good for my readers. And if it's not good for my readers, it's not good for me. Like, bottom line. I did see, and I haven't read these yet, but I did see that you wrote a series based in Texas. And it's so awesome for me because I always feel like, oh, you know, those English gals, they write those historical romance novels and they're just... <laughs> They've got the one leg up on us because they live over there. You know, they know. But I'm like, mm -hmm. someone from England write something based in Texas. I was like, that takes some that takes some guts. That takes some moxie. Because, I mean, I live in America and Texas is like a different country. You know what I, I mean? mean like, I was, it was not easy. You know, my yeah. first series was medieval. And as I said, my, my academic background is medieval. So I almost did no research for that series, if I'm honest. Not because I didn't care about the history, but because I knew the really? vast majority of it already. Yeah. Um, being British, being a lover of Jane Austen, being someone who read Regency Romance since year dot, <laughs> writing Regency, you know, yes, there's definitely some research, but a lot of it is just stuff I know. It's just part of the history that I was taught at school. It's part of, you know, you wander around Bath and you walk down Milsom Street and, you know, it's you recognise these things. You go, oh, yeah, that's where the Milan Writing about 1840s Texas when it was kind of a country, but also kind of not. Oh, yeah. From thousands of miles away is not easy. Um, and it turned, it, it kind of all came about in a really, really interesting way. So, um, one of my author friends, Melissa Storm, who I, I highly recommend, she writes really wonderful, sweet, kind of wholesome, inspirational romance, contemporary romance. Really, really like, oh, cozy, warm. Oh, so good. Um, and a few years ago now, Kindle, which is part of uh, Amazon, created something called Kindle Worlds. And a lot of readers may not have heard of this, but essentially what Kindle Worlds was, was a program in which an author could say, look, I've written this really great series, but if I create it as a world, other authors will be allowed legally, like IP-wise, to write in that world. And I'll take a percentage, but the author will also get the bulk of it. Um, and Melissa Storm was so popular and still is so popular that Kindle reached out to her and said, look, we'd love to create a, a Kindle world for your small town because she writes this amazing small town romance. Um, and she got in touch and I was really, really interested. It was a part of my career where I was looking to kind of stretch myself. But I said to her, you know, I'm, I'm not ready. I don't know if I'll ever be ready to write contemporary romance. You know, historical romance is what I love. But I do have this idea of writing the founding story of your town. So cool. Yeah, and yeah. she was like, that would be amazing. So I was like, great, let's do it. And I wrote five stories. Um, they're novellas. You know, they're short and sweet. They're sit down for an afternoon with a cup of tea and enjoy. Um, and in a way, I think 
that was the series that first really pushed me, not just because it was from a time and a place that I'd never written about, um, but they were people in a world that I'd never written about in this kind of frontier towns where, you know, if you fell over and broke your leg, there's not a doctor for like 50 miles. Like right. you may not, you know, you may not reach them. Um, and, you know, it, it was a completely different way of thinking about danger for my characters. Like, well, no, actually, if he falls off a horse, he may die. <laughs> I've got to be a little, got to be a little bit more careful with them. Um, and it was also the first series where I wrote um, from the perspective of a disabled character. So one of my heroines in that series, Mariana, uh, she's blind, she's visually impaired. And that was such a challenge for me as an author in terms of my craft. You know, thinking about, okay, well, if I can't see anything, yeah. how do I navigate the world? How, how do I get from my bedroom to my kitchen? I how do, really, how do I do did it? Did you do play acting in your house? Like, I think I would have to act that out to actually like get it in my head. So part of it was me knocking things over my house. <laughs> um, part of it was doing um, a lot of reading and reading kind of biographies and autobiographies of visually impaired people, not necessarily celebrities, just people, just, yeah. just normal people, just like me. Um, and part of it was doing a lot of stuff on YouTube and hearing the voices and how people spoke about, you know, even think, you know, simple things like, you know, oh, you've come in from the garden. Oh, yeah, I can see that. Well, you wouldn't say that. You'd say, right. oh, I can, I can smell that. Or I heard that you're wearing your, your thick winter boots. Or, do you know what I mean? Every, yeah. These things, sort of catchphrases that we say, especially for, about visual things, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that just, you know, pot color in the kettle black. Well, how do you have a concept of color if you've been born visually impaired? Right, right. So it's, it's things that I kind of, the more you hear from someone from a community that's so different from you, you suddenly realize, oh gosh, yeah, they wouldn't say this, they'd say that. And it's not necessarily something that I could work out by trying to navigate downstairs with my eyes shut. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I could see how that would be just a huge strengthening exercise for you as a writer. Like, oh. you know, <laughs> yes, no, I know. Horrible. You probably, I mean, yes, I would complain the entire time, but it's so it good for you. It was exhausting. Yeah. And it's one of the books I'm most proud of. And that was written Aww. 2018. So it's it's a way back. In fact, my my second Harlequin Mills and Boons book, um, my heroine in that is visually impaired. And it, it was really fascinating to write a book with a character with the same disability as one from Trying to My Mass here five years ago and just mm -hmm. see how far I'd come as a writer. Because don't get me wrong, there were still difficulties and there were still sections that I would just go, I'm going to have to come back to it when I'm feeling more clever because right now I don't know how I'm going to explain this. I don't know how she's going to do that. Yeah. But, you know, there were, there was definitely a strengthening. There was definitely, you know, of, of those particular craft muscles. And I think, you know, going back to put your best Duke forward, you know, with this, with my hero, Joseph, Duke of Wincham, who's lost the, the most, you know, the greater part of his leg. You know, mm -hmm. things that I hadn't considered at first, you know, his balance is now totally off. Right. And nothing, none of his clothes fit him. And he doesn't know what to do with all this extra material. If he chops it off, it's like chopping off his leg again, but then it's just trailing. And, and, and all these different things where you think, gosh, you know, that is something that I've never had to consider before. And there'll be books like that in the future. You know, I, I'm, I'm really passionate about writing as many different types of people in the world as there are into my stories. I think everyone deserves to see themselves fall in love on the page. 
But that's mm-hmm. going to only get more and more challenging for me as I start to really push past my comfort zone. Um, and I want to do that respectfully. And I want to do that in a way that is that is true to life right? in a historical it, setting. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. I had a heroine in one of my previous Dragonblade series who was born um, with a limb difference. So her hand or one of her hands stopped at the wrist. I was born that way. Nothing wrong with her. Doesn't hurt. It's just, you know, and and that was really inspired by someone I worked with years before. And I actually contacted her and I said, look, I want to write this character and I want to make it true to life. And I want to, to make her joyful. She's going to fall in love. And the whole story isn't about her arm. It's about how mischievous she is and how she manages to coerce her best friend into a ridiculous bet. And he falls in love with her about it. Mm. And I want her on the cover with a limb difference because I want people of all backgrounds to be able to see themselves in my books. And she was like, great, let's do it. So she was my sensitivity reader, um, which I'm so grateful for. Yeah, that's Um, amazing. But it does mean that the more books I write, the more challenging it's going to get for me. Well, that's good because it's going to come across. It's going to come across to the readers and really you're better for it. You know, I, I hope think, so. As long as the book quality stays high. Well, I, I don't. I don't think you're going to have any problem with that. But uh, <laughs> you know, I know you write. Uh, you know, I guess you call them the sweeter books versus steamier books. Uh, what do you prefer? <laughs> I don't know. I think. So I think if if we think about the scale kind of one to five, so one is that wholesome, you know, maybe not even a kiss on the page. Five is like full description, very physical, very detailed. I probably mostly write a three to four. Um, okay. So there's there's always a lovemaking scene in my books, if not more. Um, but it's very emotionally driven. It's very intimacy driven. Right. Um, you know, it moves the plot along and it enables the characters to open up to each other in a way that a lovemaking scene otherwise wouldn't be able to do um so i think oh i don't know okay well let me let me reframe a little bit or just change the question (laughs) what uh, you've been writing for 10 years have you seen a difference in your readers liking one over the other oh that's interesting Yes, I think different genres have different standards. Yeah, so, sure. t- so, so typically, and these are big, broad generalizations. Please don't email either Margot or myself and complain about this. I know that maybe you're different. I know. But in the main, I think Regency, you have readers who love sweet and who love steamy. For medieval, most of the time it's on the sweeter side. Most of the time. Really? Yeah. Huh. Most of the stuff that I see is on the sweeter side. It still may have a lovemaking scene in, but it's yeah. very like and fade to black. And it's usually <laughs> after marriage. And it's usually so it, whereas Regency, I've I've read books which I love where there is sex on page three. And they are oh, not. Oh yes, married. amazing. God, can't all books be like that? And they're getting they're getting straight into it. Um <laughs> I think that so I think that there's a slight there's a slight you know, I think westerns are typically very sweet. You typically don't get a lot of lovemaking on the page in a historical western. Yeah. Um, is that to say there aren't some very good, very steamy westerns out there? A hundred and ten percent. But in general, the genre is sweeter. Um, and I don't know why that is. I do, because it's not. It's not a time thing. You know, Regency in the main is slightly earlier than westerns. So it's not that the further back you go, the sweeter it is. By any means. If I was um, going to come up with a theory, just mm. off the top of my head, I would think 
you look at regencies and they the time period from an outside point of view seems so delicate. You know, it seems very mm, chivalrous and with all the rules and yada, yada, that it can afford that sort of steaminess. And then I'll go to Westerns and I will think the exact opposite. It's a gritty time. It's a, you know, it's sand and hot and dirty and cowboys and visceral. Yeah. Yes. No one's taking baths or showers and you're just like, <laughs> oh. And uh, yeah, like I just, and so maybe that's where it shines more. And that's sort of, you know, the women want more flowers and flowers and no wing. Yes. What I think I, I, what I think is amazing is that no matter what type of reader you are, and I'm including Margot myself, but like we are readers just as much as we are readers, but no matter what time period you want and no matter what heat rating you want and no matter what kind of pairing you want, there are books out there for you. Oh, yes. And so that's many. what I love about the author community right now. And, you know, for the whole 10 years that I've been a part of it, I can't speak for beforehand. But as long as you're writing quality and you're writing with passion, not passion on the page, but because you love writing and you love and respect your readers, you'll mm-hmm. be welcomed into the author community. And that means that that necessarily leads to books of all shapes and sizes and flavors which means that every reader is going to be able to find what they want eventually. You may not find it straight away. It may be a little bit more difficult to find, mm-hmm. but the book you want is out there. And you know what? If you can't find it, write it. Nice. Yes. I hear you. <laughs> That's good. That's for, I, th- I think we should end there. I All think right. we should end there. <laughs> Unless you had something else you wanted to add. Am I missing something? Do you want to? I don't think so. Um, I will get that coupon code over to you um, so that if anyone wants to get onto that course, it's called You Can Write More Words. Um, and it's all about either fitting in more words into the time you have or cutting down the time that you spend writing and keeping the same number of words so that you can dedicate more time to other parts of your life. So that's children, family, friends, job, caregiving, passions, hobbies, whatever it is, Netflix. Um, So yeah, I will, I will make sure that coupon code um, is over to you. Um, And yeah, just if anyone wants to to reach out to me, I have um, a free book available to those um, who would like to join a mailing list. Um, And so if you uh, go onto my website, you'll be able to find um, that on there. And that's emilyekmurdoch.com. So there you have it. That was my talk with Emily E.K. Murdoch. Pretty fun, right? Um, I hope you enjoyed it. And, and don't forget to check out her new book, Put Your Best Duke Forward, which comes out in a couple of days. As always, if you would like to help support the podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating and review. Also, to stay up to date with Romancing the Tome and get all of the behind the scenes content, as well as learn about upcoming guests, you can follow me on Facebook or sign up for my newsletter on my website, margothorn.com. Thank you so much for spending your time with me and I will see you next episode.